0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our programme. Richard Dawkins is a regular How To Academy guest and a previous contributor to this very podcast. He joined us at a big event in London in February for a wide-ranging conversation with Robin Ince about his life and work as a scientist and science writer. The event was about his two most recent books, Flights of Fancy and Books Do Furnish a Life. The first, a history of flying animals and machines. The second, a collection of Richard's favourite science writing in English. Enjoy.
1: In terms of when when you sat down and wrote The Selfish Gene, there are certain names that pop up in in the book quite a lot in terms of, I would have imagined your your influences, people like uh, Peter Medawar. Were you thinking about other people's work? Did you notice that influence when you first sat down to write The Selfish Gene? I think you can't help being influenced by writers that
2: you admire. And Peter Medower, you mentioned him. His style was arrogant. He had good reason to be arrogant. I don't have good reason to be arrogant. And so to imitate him would be be a a mistake. But there's something about his his style, his sort of patrician wit, which... um, I think you can't help rubbing off, I don't know whether you find the same, but I find with some of Peter Meadowers' phrase making, that I want to kind of rush out into the street and show somebody and say, look at this, and, and um, I, I guess that's bound to rub off a bit.
1: And also, one of my favourite influences you mention is, because this is an influence that I've heard from other scientists as well, I was saying to you beforehand, Jane Goodall as well, Dr. Doolittle. When When you were a child, is is that and it seems interesting because, with quite a few scientists I've spoken to, there are children's books which deal with wonderful ideas of communication and his very specifically of talking to animals that actually does seem to have had effect in the way that they interact with ideas of evolutionary biology.
2: Yes, I, I have named Dr. Doolittle as an influence in my life, not so much actually about the talking to animals as being good to animals, as being, um, I think I first of all, grasped before the word speciesism had been coined. Dr. Doolittle was forever preaching against speciesism. And I think that certainly rubbed off on me.
1: And I I want to just talk, we're also getting into flights of fancy here. There's a a, a beautiful piece you wrote about the ascent of man, which again, I think was, was hugely influential on a very large number of people. And your piece about Jacob Bronowski seems to the very important part of of something which seems to get lost, which feels we still have the two cultures. There are still these battles between art and science, even though so many scientists I know are trying to embrace the arts. And one of those things seems to be an understanding of imagination because Jacob Ranofsky spent... Many of his lectures are about saying... Science is about imagination. It's not about counting. It's not about going, i finished counting that thing and now I've got an equation. It's about daydreaming. It's about going into different places. And I, I, I think you know, quite a lot of your work as well deals with the importance of that imagination.
2: I guess there may be people here too young to have seen uh, the Branowski famous series of um, The Ascent of Man, which was commissioned by David Attenborough. When David Attenborough was head of BBC Two, uh, he commissioned... Bronowski to do science, and he commissioned um, Clark to do uh, art at, at the same time. But they both, I think, were 11-part or 13-part series, really long series. And there was time for these two wonderful explainers to, to really let themselves go. And Bronowski had a lovely style. He was, was a sort of understated style but it was immensely effective. And his hand gestures were were part of it. I don't know if he ad-libbed. It looked as though he was ad-libbing. I suppose it must have been scripted, but it was so well delivered that you would never have known that it was scripted. His visit to, I forget which of the concentration camps it was, probably Auschwitz, I think. And the way he as a Jew, the way he understated the horror of it, it was so moving, uh, rather than doing a sort of rant. It was wonderful. And when it came to reprinting a new edition of the book of those famous lectures, I felt extremely honoured to be asked by Bronowski's daughter to do the foreword to it. And so I took a lot of trouble over that. But it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful series. I think you can still get it, Probably on either Netflix or one of those, maybe BBC iPlayer.
1: I think you're in mean, that moment, as you say, when he's in Auschwitz. And it's an incredible episode because it begins with discussions about quantum mechanics. And then through that journey of discovery of the nature of probability, if you've never seen it, it's on YouTube. You can say it, it's one of the most, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about, because as far as I know, he, he didn't script it. He, had a, he would collate a load of ideas in his head. You know that wonderful moment where he holds the skull of Lucy, I think? Yes. And he, just, he had lots of ideas in his head, and then the camera, they would go, right now we're turning, action, and then it would just come together in that moment. And I think that's what gives it... Yeah. And the same moment, that horrifying moment where he talks about, you know, it was not science that committed those atrocities... It was ideology. It was a belief in utter certainty. And if you've never seen, no, no one knew he was going to do that. He walked into that pool of ashes. That's right. Pool of ashes. Yes. Of 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 mud. And and I think that communication is. And it seems to be, a, I mean, still a, a battle to get that communication uh, across, to get that idea. You know, you talk in the book about the fact that it's still... John Humphrey's on Today programme. I know he's not right anymore, but he would always... When it got to science, it would be kind of, here come the boffins. I, I don't understand any of... Whatever this old kind of nuts thing is. There's yeah. this whole mockery of, like, a, a, as if a scientist like yourself has, has a kind of... A different kind of brain. There's a strange eccentric yeah, brain yeah. that is somehow evidence-based. Yes, I
2: found when I, 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 I was interviewed by John Humphreys occasionally and I found that I was terrified because he had this reputation for being, for being fierce and he, and he was fierce to politicians. Um, but he was really rather nice, I think, to, to me and probably is to scientists generally. As you say, it's a bit, bit of a joke, but nevertheless, it's um, it's
1: fun. Do you, do you feel we are getting places now in terms of... Because I, I sometimes wonder, I think maybe it's just because of the echo chambers that I'm in where I see so many people who wish to engage with science, and yet I still feel that there is that, that sense of, of, of mockery and, and that sense of that it's fine to go, oh, I don't do maths, oh, I don't really understand physics. Oh, well, that, that. That's a socially acceptable thing.
2: Yes. I mean you, you, if, if you said that you thought that Byron wrote The Odyssey or something you, you couldn 't get away with that in cultivated society, but to say that you can't do maths or don't know any science that's that's okay that 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 is true I think I wrote about that in an earlier book. I don't think it's probably not in this
1: one. You have a little bit I think bernard Levin pops up that's right bernard this, Levin.
2: book Bernard Levin wrote something about quarks, and he said, "The quarks are coming, the quarks are coming. Can you eat quarks? Can you spread them on the on your bed when you 're cold at night and and then Some rather magnificent physicist wrote back and said, I calculate that Mr. Levin eats God knows how many gazillion quarks every day.
1: What for you has been that? I mean, because something like, you know, quantum mechanics, uh, some of the, the, the ideas of, of, of cosmology that have, have, have come to light in the last 20 years, some of them are very counter-instinctual. But what have been the most difficult ideas that you've faced, those ones where you think, now, this one is...
2: Well, is... not in my own field. I mean, I, 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 of, of course, as a biologist, I don't understand quantum physics, and I'm not proud of it. And I do my best, and I, and I talk to physicists whenever I can and try to understand... And I, I get some of the t- time that, that I think even they don't really understand it. And, and um, Well, I, it, they almost definitely say that. I think it was, was it Feynman, among many people who said, if you think you understand quantum theory, you don't understand quantum theory. And Feynman also said, shut up and calculate. Don't bother to try to understand it, just do the sums. And that's what they do. They, they can do the sums, they can do the mathematics They can deduce mathematically what follows from this weird, incomprehensible theory. And it doesn't matter how weird or incomprehensible it may be, if you do the maths, if you you shut up and calculate and actually deduce predictions from it and then experimentally test the predictions, they come out accurate to so many decimal places that it's equivalent to predicting the width of North America to the width of one human hair. So it's got to be true, in some sense. And yet nobody understands exactly what it is that's true. <laughs> because, they, because it's so hard to, for the human mind to grasp. And as an evolutionist, well, I agree with Steve Pinker that our brains were never meant to understand aspects of physics. It's an amazing, in a way, that brains which were designed by natural selection to hunt and gather on the African savanna and never had to deal with anything smaller than a beetle and anything faster than a cheetah, that nevertheless many physicists can understand or go a long way to understanding. Why should we expect that brains that were never designed to understand these things would do so? And it's one of the mysteries, I think one of the mysteries of biology is why it is that this brain of ours can overreach itself and go so far beyond what natural selection ever designed
1: it to do. I think that's a, a wonder of the human species. It's what makes me proud to be human. It, that, that always worries me. That old thing about you know it, anyone who says they understand quantum theory doesn't understand quantum theory. Because for someone like me, it gives me a brief moment of victory because I think, oh, I don't understand quantum theory either. And then I realise that I don't understand it to a very different level that Jim Al Khalili doesn't understand it. That's kind of, yes, but but that's I mean that seems to be part of the excitement, which again many of the people that you write about uh, in books to you furnish your life, which is that excitement of the uncertain. And this seems to be, again, part of the battle in science communication. I think sometimes we and we've seen this a lot in the last two years during the pandemic, oh, scientists said this now, but before they said that, not realising that, of course, science is a perpetual journey. And as the evidence improves, as the technology to investigate improves, then our idea changes. But this, it still seems to me to be one of the major battles of saying that science is never 100% certain. Well, that's true, of course, yes. The other thing, I suppose, is,
2: is when people complain that scientists say so and so is good for you i don't know wine red, red red wine is good for the heart and then next week somebody says it's bad for the heart well those are not actually contradictory because you could have a, a u-shaped curve and if you have a certain amount of something on the upper part of the curve it's good for you and then you go over the top and it becomes bad for you and that's perfectly reasonable the two are perfectly compatible with each other they're not contradictory but the way it's reported in the papers, it sounds as though it is contradictory.
1: I think the third bottle's the one that is bad for you, isn't it, as far as I remember? The... But, but that, that to me seems that why it is so important, as, as you say many times, you know, to engage with these ideas. And also I wonder how, how you feel about the fact that sometimes, for again, non-scientists like me, I can read a book and not necessarily understand, like Brief History of Time, so many you know, people go, oh, who read that, oh, that book? You know, everyone bought it, no one read it. I've read it three times. So have I. I still don't understand a no, lot of me, me, it. But each too. time I get another little bit. Yes. And there's another little clue, another little... Ch- and that seems to me to be one of the important things in science communication is not to say, here are the answers, but to say, the sky is a little different today. And here are some new questions you can ask. Yeah, I agree. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's the best book
2: out on that subject. And I think that um, it's, it's partly the sort of knowing by how, how, what an amazing man Stephen Hawking was, and therefore uh, you, you, you want to read it. But um, Peter Atkins on the same kind of subject is, is is much better and is really poetic. I mean, one of the most poetic writers I, I know. P- Peter Atkins' The Creation, or Creation Revisited, is, is a wonderful... You don't necessarily understand it, but you get that feeling of... As it washes through you, you kind of get something, and then you read it again, and it's something, you, get, you get something more, exactly as you said. But at the same time, you're reading these this beautifully turned phrases of scientific prose
1: poetry. Peter Atkins. Oh, Peter Atkins. Because I, uh, I have that lovely thing where the first time I read it, sometimes I don't understand it at all. The second time, I understand it while I'm reading it. Then I closed the book and realised I didn't understand it at all. But I enjoyed the time where I believed I was understanding it. And then hopefully by the third time... And again, that's what I I adore about it, is it keeps building, it keeps giving. And the real test is, do you
2: understand it well enough to to explain it to somebody else? And that's far more difficult. And I find that because I'm, I'm not very bright and it takes me a while to understand something, then I'm much better at explaining it to other people because I've had to work so hard at, at understanding it myself.
1: Do you have any? I mean, in terms of explaining ideas, are there certain ideas where you're It's like sharing. It's like sharing a beautiful piece of art or sharing a beautiful piece of music. There are certain things that to share an idea and see people's face light up as they start. There are so many. What are your, what are no, your... There are so, so many. I mean, a, a lifetime as an Oxford tutor, where, where, where I, I've
2: had to discuss. Mind you, you're not so much explaining there as trying to draw it out of other people but, but yes, I mean um, oh, I, I, all my books really if there's any part of my book you enjoy it's because I roll my sleeves up and say right, I'm really going to
1: enjoy explaining this and, and I love it Is there an idea that you've really felt in the act of writing that you've, you, you've fallen back in? Love? not that you've fallen out of love with them but one in particular where you, you, you feel now to hear people also because now people can communicate with you in so many different ways and that sense that a book may well have changed someone a chapter may have changed someone even a sentence might have changed someone
2: yes um, the last chapter of Climbing Mount Improbable is about figs and fig wasps and if you ask me to explain it now I will absolutely refuse because it's the most complicated thing I've ever understood I think it's an incredibly complicated relationship between figs and their pollinators which are tiny little wasps uh, which by the way every time you eat a fig you're eating wasps you know that And um, the story is so involved and so complicated, and it really shows what an amazingly complicated thing natural selection is, how it can achieve this amazingly complicated relationship between a plant and an animal. But don't ask me to
1: explain it. Uh, what was it about, because this, this book is, an, an, again, talking about the two cultures, this is a very beautiful book as well. Jana, who, who uh, created the illustrations, it's a wonderful mix of a lot of ideas about natural selection, about our understanding of evolution, but also beautiful, sometimes mythic images. And then sometimes creatures, I mean, it reminded me a lot of that wonderful quote, again, I think probably Richard Feynman, uh, it nearly always is, it seems sometimes, which is, the imagination of nature is far greater than the imagination of man. And that seems to run through a lot, I thought, of flights of fancy. You look at some of the behavior that's evolved, some of the structures that have evolved, and you think that the imagination of nature truly is grander than the things that we can very often perceive.
2: Yes, there's something called Pop's Third Law, which says natural selection is cleverer than you are. And, and, and that, that shows up. Yes, um, well, flights of fancy, it, it, it's about flight, um, and it's about flight in, in evolution in animals and flight in, 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 in humans, because they face the same problem, problems, physics is the same. And so the problems of designing a, a glider or a plane are similar to those that face a bird. And so through the chapters, we go through powered flight, gliding flight, being lighter than air, all, all these different ways of doing it, which, which in some cases the animals don't do. and One of the questions is, why don't animals have hot air balloons and, and, and float up? It seems they don't. They, they, no, no, no animal has ever evolved um, the equivalent of a, of, a, of a balloon. That's
1: the kind of question we tackle. Um, and why did you decide this time? Why, why to, I mean, you, you start off at the beginning of the book to talk about the fact that this is, this is something that returns in your dreams, this sense of the idea of flying. I think most people dream about
2: flying. It, it's, it's such a wonderful feeling of liberation to be able to get off the escape the tyranny of gravity and soar up into the air and over the treetops. Um, so that's part of it. it. It actually grew out of an earlier book, The Magic of Reality, which is a children's book or a young people's book, in which each chapter was a question like, why do we have winter and summer? Why do we have day and night? What is an earthquake? What is the sun? There are about ten questions of that sort, and each chapter then has that question as their chapter heading. It begins with myths about answering the question, and then the science. And I think I originally thought that it might be nice to do a second volume of Magic of Reality with ten more questions. But the first question was flight, and that became such a big subject that it grew into a whole book. So that, that, that's where it came from. And the myths, well, there's the myth of Icarus, of course, which is, which is in there, and the myth of Mohammed on a winged horse, and the, then we get into, into the science But it's also partly more than just myth, it's the the dream of flying, the dream of flying that inspired Leonardo da Vinci, who comes up several times in the book. His desire to fly, his attempted design, he did design lots of flying machines, and none of them would have worked. But they were wonderfully ambitious and imaginative, as you'd expect.
1: Well, that's one of the, on on da Vinci as well, the, the, the fact that a lot of people I know have always felt there's just not enough writing by Richard Dawkins about the nature of angels, And you go very deeply into looking at the angels, the the wings of an angel, which I I think is a a, a beautiful departure to then explore the nature of flight. Can you tell us a little bit about that? They're not big enough. Um,
2: There's a a picture of um, Leonardo's Annunciation, a beautiful picture of the Annunciation by the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. And Yana redrew it by giving the angel wings that might just have had a sporting chance of getting him off the ground. Um, they're pathetically small, the ones in the, in the original. If you're as big as a human, then flying is a really difficult problem. Leonardo tried it, tried, designed it, it wouldn't have worked. The only time anybody succeeded in using human muscle power to get off the ground is, I think, Paul McCready. We've got a, a, bit, a bit about him, who, who modified... A, a, glider, put a propeller on it and had it propelled by a cyclist. This thing had to be incredibly light and incredibly streamlined. It was so light that the cyclist on board was more than half the weight of the entire craft, which is a huge, great, great glider. And he he won a competition. He just got across the English Channel, pedaling furiously all the way about uh, 10 meters above the sea it almost gave up in sight of the French coast and just managed to struggle on and get there. But birds do it so effortlessly. It's, it, it, it's something to envy. And, what, and one of the reasons is that we're too big. So an angel would be too big to do flapping flight. You could glide. There have been flying animals as big as humans, as heavy as humans, which, but they probably only glide.
1: I blame the popes. I would imagine it was a, you know, they, they would say, and I want 17 angels on yes, my ceiling. Yes, yes. And Da Vinci would say, well, well, well I can't. And Michelangelo, they'd go, well, well they, I can only fit two angels because they've got huge wings. Make them smaller. Yes, so I would imagine yes, it was papal intervention yes. which made the angels yes. ridiculous. Yes. Um, There's a rumor, actually, that, that Leonardo painted the wings originally even
2: smaller than that. And some later artist tumbled to the fact that they're a bit smaller and
1: enlarged them a bit, but nothing like enough. I love, I love that bit of the book, though. It's a, and it's so beautifully illustrated as well. Now, one of the things that I, I think is very important in terms of, again, looking at evolution by natural selection is at one point you look at what's the point of half a wing? What's the point of only a bit of a oh, wing? Yes. And, of course, before you've, you've dealt with the eye, which was one of the most common questions thrown at you when debating with creationists or the entirely different intelligent design proponent. And that again, seems to deal with some of that same area, which is Yes, it is. It's a, it's, it's a very nice... Um, it's one of the things I rather enjoy trying to talk
2: about is, is this, what's the use of half for something? It happens to be a wing in this case, but it could be an eye, it could be all sorts of things. The dilemma is this. It, you, can, you can accept that natural selection works. Once the wing is kind of almost there, then natural selection could perfect it and make it even better. But how does it start? How does the initial projection from the body that's going to become a wing eventually. How could natural selection work on that when it actually wouldn't work? I mean, if the animal tried to fly with a little stub of a wing, a tenth of a wing, or even half a wing, it would just fall. And so um, you've got to think of somehow a gradient of improvement, a gradual ramp of improvement, starting from nothing, and then gradually improving. And there are plenty of animals around that sort of Sort of do that. They're gliding animals. They don't really fly. They live in forests, especially in Southeast Asia, but in Africa as well, and Australia. And they have membranes which, in some cases, stretch from the arm to the leg. So it's like a squirrel. In fact, some of them are squirrels, flying, so called flying squirrels. They're gliding squirrels. And squirrels have a fair bit of sort of loose skin around anyway. And so, any little increase in the surface area that you can present to the air will give you just that little bit more purchase on the air. And so, if you're a squirrel who's already leaping from branch to branch, and you can perhaps leap from here to that loudspeaker there, an ordinary squirrel could do that. If it had a little bit more surface area, it could leap just that much further in a tree and survive without falling. So it doesn't matter how small is the increase in surface area that you put on your body, it'll get you just that much further. And somewhere up there in the, in the forest, in the, in the canopy of the forest, there will be a branch distance which is just right for the next step, the next increase in surface area. And so starting from, well, ordinary squirrels just have a, a fluffy tail which helps that these gliding squirrels have a little bit of a membrane, have a little bit of skin hanging down from your elbow, perhaps, which gives you a little bit more surface area. Gradually it gets larger and larger until it stretches from the arm to the leg. And these flying squirrels have have this membrane. It's called a patagium. And they glide very successfully. They glide, oh, 100 yards or so, starting from a high tree and then leaping and then gliding to another tree hundred yards away in the forest and landing in, on the base of the other tree and then they can climb up that, that tree. There are um, so-called flying lemurs, which do the same thing. They're not lemurs, they're called flying lemurs. And in, that, in their case, the membrane extends to the tail as well. So in, in effect, the whole body is one big parachute. And again, they don't really fly, but they glide. There are Australian marsupial gliders in the eucalyptus forests of Australia which do the same thing and look exactly like the flying squirrels of Africa and Asia. There are two different groups of rodents, there's the flying squirrels and there's another group of, of, of rodents which do the same thing. Then there are frogs which, which do the same thing using the skin between their toes and fingers. They stretch their have elongated fingers and toes and they use that as a flight surface. There are lizards which don't use the limbs, they have their, their ribs stick out. They can stick their ribs out, and the ribs have skin between the ribs, which again acts as a flight surface. So all these are demonstrations of what can be done with half a wing. And the flying squirrels and the flying lemurs, while they're gliding, they could do a certain amount of adjustment. like. He- humans with parachutes can, by pulling strings, they can... Or hang gliders can do, do the same kind of thing. So there's, it's not that much a difficult bridge to cross, to go from gliding and then having a, a controlled glide by moving your limbs as you glide to actually flapping. So it's easy to imagine the gradient of steady improvement in evolution from something like a flying squirrel... There's another theory, which is that, it's, that that's called the, the, the trees down theory, and then there's also the, the, the ground up theory, which some people think is more probable for birds. It is developed from leaping off the ground, pouncing off the ground, perhaps, uh, leaping to get away from a predator, or pouncing if you are a predator. And then once again, any increase in surface area gives you a little bit more uh, get a little bit more distance that you that you can jump two so there's the ground up theory and the and the trees down theory i prefer the trees down theory i think i think it's more plausible but well two theories is better than one in some ways
0: hello it's vas here recommending you a new book from our friends at firm press this may the author of the argonauts and other genre defying unclassifiable modern classics maggie nelson is back with a new collection of essays it's called like love the collection celebrates art artists and thinkers including prince Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio.
1: Do, do you think just listening to you talk about that? It's one of the problems that people have in terms of understanding the nature of evolution that it is over such an enormous oh, amount of, course, of time. Because yes. as you talk about, yes. it can be tiny, 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 tiny difference yeah. in the branch. And that human-again, when we talk about the problems of human brains. Perceiving ideas, we talk about quantum mechanics, but even the idea of perceiving a million years. Yes. Um, I think a, a few thousand years
2: we get a sort of frisson of, of the romance of history going back to Babylon or something. And you think, gosh, a thousand years, three thousand years, four thousand years years—a tremendous time. Of course, it's nothing. And, and, and a, a million years is really peanuts compared to evolution. But... The other thing, of course, is that people calculate how long it would actually take to evolve something, and it's much still shorter than you think. So um, even something as complicated as an eye could be evolved really quite quickly if there was a strong selection pressure. But it's perfectly true that the, that the time scale involved is so gigantic that the human brain
1: simply can't begin to comprehend it. Now, on another thing on flight as well, which I'm always fascinated, sometimes it seems we look at certain processes, such as the evolution of the ability to fly. And imagine that it goes, that's the direction of progress. But then, as you say, there are, in the book, there are also examples where flight is lost as an ability, that it no longer becomes an advantage. It, it reminds me of, I think, in Steve <laughs> Jones's book, Almost Like a Whale, I think it's was the first time that I realised that or found out that a whale had had a period of time out of the sea, you know, that what the previous, before it was a whale, you know, that its ancestor had been a land mammal. And, and that seems so counter to me. You see the progress of out of the sea and into the air. And so I find that fascinating Absolutely, as well. I, I quite agree. Um, by the way, uh, tortoises, I love this
2: because you, you say, you know, whale ancestors, they, they, originally they were fish. They came out on the land and then they trooped back into the sea again after a certain time. Tortoises came back again. So, so originally their ancestors were fish like all of ours. They came onto the land and lived as land tortoises for a while. And they went back into the water like whales and became turtles. And then turtles came back onto the land and became tortoises.
1: So they did a double back. Um, I love that it's like those people who sometimes in their 80s return to where they lived as children and then go, oh, actually, it's not how I remember it. Let's go back out again. Yes, I think that's, yes, a, yes.
2: that's right. Yeah.
1: Um, yes, uh, it's very,
2: very common for... Birds, when they get on an island and they find there are no predators, they tend to lose their wings. And there are dodos, for example, are a nice example. But there are, there are really hundreds of different cases where island birds have become flightless. Uh, Galapagos, flightless cormorants, lots of other birds do. Um, even things like ostriches and elephant birds and moas, which are gigantic now, their ancestors must have flown They've got wings, they're just little, little stubby wings. They've lost them, and they've grown big now. But originally, almost certainly, a very long time ago, in the case of ostriches and rat-eyed birds, they, they must have lost them probably on, on islands when they found they weren't necessary anymore. It's an interesting question, why? Just because you don't need something, you don't need wings anymore, why do you actually bother to lose them? I mean, why don't you just hang on? They might come in handy one day. But they do lose them. This must be economics. One of, the me- one of the messages that recurs through Flights of Fancy is economics. The fact that everything in biology is about economic trade-offs. And so, it's costly to make wings. It's costly to make flight muscles. I mean, you think of muscles on a chicken, which is not a great flyer. But even chickens, you can see this huge breast muscle that they have. That's another, th- another sort of joke we have. Is the size of the breast muscle that the angel Gabriel must have had if he was going to
1: you know, fly huge keel to stick it to, to join it onto. I can't wait for your next book, The Problem with Angels. No, it's no, gonna, no. They're not expecting actually, it. The Bishop of Leeds was not expecting that one to come out. Actually, there's not much on angels. It's, 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 there, there was more, <laughs> but the publisher wanted me to cut it out. See, it's, 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 it's the opposite of Darwin and the
2: pigeons, isn't it? That yes, you've got it? yeah. So losing wings, I mean, the most dramatic example of losing wings is queen ants, which having been on their one time in their life when they ever use their wings to mate with, they then settle down, having mated, bite their wings off or tear them off in, and then go underground and spend the rest of their life underground. Of course, worker ants don't, don't have wings, but queen ants and queen termites do have wings for... Dispersal for their for their mating flight. So, but biting your wings off is a dramatic example of why wings aren't necessarily a good thing. And they sort of epitomise for me um, the in, in, in real time. You watch it happening, but in real time, they're showing what happened in evolutionary time with the ancestors of dodos and ostriches and elephant birds and flightless cormorants, etc.
1: We'll move back to, to, uh, to the earlier book in a moment. But two things I particularly want to talk to you about was one was the outward urge, which is where you end the book. Now, this is something we were talking about before we came on, talking to some astronauts, people like Rusty Schweikart from, from Apollo 9. You know, that having been out beyond our atmosphere, someone like Rusty has now got to, you know, really has that sense that as a species, we must keep moving further away from the planet Earth. We must explore beyond the planet Earth. There's an evolutionary aspect to that, which is in the previous chapter, I think,
2: uh, that um, natural selection favours dispersal, moving out the outward urge, even if you live in the best possible place. Not all your offspring should stay in the best possible place. You need to send at least some of your offspring out to distant places. There's a mathematical theory for why that is true. Intuitively, in words, you could say however good the best place is now, there will come a time when it's destroyed by a catastrophe, by a forest fire, by a flood, something like that. And so although most animals are still perhaps surviving in the same kind of place, they indeed the same place as their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents, they probably are not living in the same place as their 30-great-grandparents because there's been a Flood or a fire or some or an earthquake or something here. So send some of your offspring out. And that I think is the motivation for Elon Musk to want to colonize Mars, that maybe one day this planet will be destroyed. And humanity needs to have not put all its eggs in one basket, but to have at least to have some of us outside this, this planet. However difficult it is to live on Mars, at least. Two planets are not going to be destroyed at the same time. And so that's, I think, his motivation. And I can see that. I mean, I, I rather... I'm, I'm saddened by the thought that one day nobody will read Shakespeare, nobody will hear Mozart or Schubert, because there won't be anybody around. Well, that's kind of part of the motivation for the outward urge, for wanting to send at least some of us out in, into, into another world. In the case of Rusty Schweikert... I had a long conversation with him at a conference once, and he is one of those who's very concerned about preparing for the possibility of a major meteorite, asteroid, um, comet strike, such as the one that killed the dinosaurs. It will happen. It won't happen necessarily. but then it, well, Indeed, we, you can't predict when it's going to happen until it's pretty, pretty close to, to happening. And so what he wants, and various other people want, is that humanity should develop the technology So that when we do detect an incoming catastrophic comet or asteroid, we'll have the technology to deal with it. It's not that far off. I mean, we already have the technology to land on a comet, which is a remarkable achievement. So if you're going to land on a comet, perhaps you can do something about changing its trajectory. And that also is not too big a problem, because we're not talking about things speeding straight at us what's happening is that it is in an elliptical orbit around the sun, and we are in an elliptical orbit, almost circular orbit, around the sun. And at some point, in the case of the dinosaur one, the elliptical orbit of one of these missiles happened to coincide with ours. Well, if you detect that in advance, all you have to do is to speed it up a little bit or slow it down a little bit. Either of those would have the effect of changing its orbit just enough, it doesn't need to be much, just enough to miss us. You only have to, this is what Rusty Schweiker told me, you only have to speed it up or slow it down by about five miles per hour. It's it's going at 10,000 miles per hour, whatever it is. So it's it's a very small difference in the speed. Of course, it's also a very big mass. If it's not a very big mass, you don't have to worry about it. But if you you have to worry about it, then it has a very large mass, which means that you need a very large force in order to speed it up or slow it down, even as little as 5 MPH. But that's the kind of thing that he wants to do. And it's an interesting technological problem. And I liken the outward urge itself to, oh, the impulse that led uh, the Vikings to discover America and for Columbus to as he thought, discover the Indies and then find it was America. Um, The the urge to leave, the urge to go out, the the urge to explore, which is sort of a a metaphor in a way for the scientific urge to explore the imagination. The outward urge works at that level as well as at the the actual physical level.
1: I just wondered also when when you were mentioning there about that that thought that there will be no one to read Shakespeare, there will be no one to to listen to to Mozart. And how much... I know that certain scientists... Paul Dirac, for instance, was... uh accepted and believed that his life was finite, that his consciousness, was that, that was it. But he found it very difficult to accept the idea there will be an end to the universe, an end to conscious beings. And I think Fred Hoyle, to some extent, from some conversation I've had, had some issues as well, which is perhaps why he was not, you know, in terms of the Big Bang, that may well mean there would be an end as well. So I wondered, psychologically or philosophically, how do you deal with, with, with that sense that maybe there will be a time. Yeah, yes, I, 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 I agree with that. I, I find that
2: um, dealing with, with my own death is easier in a way than dealing with the thought that there will come a time when, when nobody can read Shakespeare. And there will, I mean, no matter you know, going to Mars, I mean, eventually the whole thing's going to come to an end. And, and I find that a sad thought. And I suppose I'd like humanity to go on for a long time for that reason. And um, well, we got we got about a, Another five billion years until the
1: sun engulfs us. But... So just use that time well. Um, it is, I mean, that, that's what I, I find. That, to me, is, again, what comes from, from looking at, you know... There's a n- nice story about that, by the way. Somebody said, did you say five million years or five billion
2: years? Five billion. <laughs> that's a relief.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that does seem to be reading some of the pieces, some of your essays that you wrote as well, that that sense that some people want a definite meaning, and to live in a meaningless universe, as you mentioned, I think, in the introduction seems, and yet, to me, that seems to be a much better universe, where we have to work out our meaning, because to be told eventually there is one single meaning, I imagine a lot of people would go, that's a pity, I don't like that meaning at all.
2: Yes, I, I think physicists aspire to understand everything, and I think some of them think that'll be rather sad. I mean, empty feeling, you know, nothing more to do. No. no I, I see it both ways. I, w- I would love, in a way, the theory of everything, the T-O-E, to understand everything. That would be wonderful. On the other hand, as you say, there'd be a certain sort of feeling of emptiness. I, d- I don't get the feeling of emptiness. Many people do. Thinking that we, we live in a lonely universe. We're alone in the universe, and we're on our own, and, and there is this vast cosmic space with nothing there. I find that a rather gorgeous thought.
1: Yeah, I think there's some lovely... All of the, the different people who've written about the importance of not answers but questions. I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine who said one of the reasons he was so glad he was brought up Jewish, he said it was because the first thing I learned was you're allowed to answer a question with a question. And I thought, isn't that, you know, that to me is so much more joyful than when someone just goes, 1872, let's move on. Yes, you know, that's yes,
2: quite, yeah. Now
1: we're going to, uh, now it is your time to ask uh, those questions. <coughs> uh, uh, let's start in that corner over there, because that's the first one. So, r- yes, just behind you up there, keep your hand up. There. And then I should come down there as well. I'm curious about your comments around longevity of man and things which happen over a much longer timescale. And so, Richard, I'm curious whether you think the current views on climate change are a simulacrum of that, the fact that people are worried about things which are happening short-term, whereas the actual climate change is a much longer-term phenomenon and whether you, whether you are worried or not. Are, are, what is your worry in terms well, of our reaction to climate change? Well, I suppose climate change,
2: change is a kind of intermediate stage because there it's a matter of perhaps decades, and so it's something where people have to, I mean, economists talk about discounting the future, and if it's something that's going to affect your grandchildren, you ought to be concerned about that, but somehow people are less concerned about that than if it's going to happen tomorrow, and so that's one of the problems with getting people uh, to be sufficiently aware of the climate change danger, that it's, it's not happening now, you can't actually feel it happening, you can't, you can't, um, you can't see it happening, and so one of the targets of the science education should be to somehow get people to understand about these slightly longer timescales. It's not, it's not millions of years, it's, it's, it's only tens of years, um, if that. But, but um, that is a problem.
1: Yes, let's take a question down, down there.
2: Um, I was interested about your comments about becoming an interplanetary species, and I wondered if you yourself ever had the opportunity, would you have liked to have ever explored another planet or gone out to space or anything along those lines? There was a time when it was thought that they might be calling for volunteers to go to Mars, but it would be a one-way trip. You couldn't come back. I certainly wouldn't go for that. I think if I was guaranteed a return ticket, I would. Um, I would be fascinated to go to Mars. It, it might turn out to be rather dull when you got there because it, there's not, not a lot going on. Um, and, but I think anybody who's been a devotee of science fiction in their youth would would really feel the romance of going to another world. I I, I could imagine doing that.
1: Yes, down down, the front there.
2: Speaking of time scales,
0: in the the chapter in Flights of Fancy where you talk about the difference between evolution of flight and the the invention or the design of flight, you make the point that the design of flight happened very quickly, whereas over evolution it takes an awful long time obviously the reason for that is because we've evolved memes and we can exchange those and that, that happens very quickly. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how we are able to do that in the sense that language is something that we only humans have evolved for some reason. We don't seem to know why we have and I wonder why you think that is the
2: case and how it might have happened. Well c- certainly la- language is, is an extraordinary phenomenon and uh, it's it's something that there, there are many things that make humans unique, but, but language, I think I'd probably single that out as being the number one, because the la- language is the one that has made possible each generation to learn from previous generations and to build on what previous generations have done, which is why something like the, the um, evolution of the computer or the car or the airplane is so much faster than the equivalent uh, in biological evolution. So language is, is an utterly fascinating phenomenon. The, it, it has, one can say that non-human animals have certain elements of it. I mean, there are, there are birds, there's bird song, there's whale song, there's, there are all sorts of signals that animals use, but it's nothing like language. It's nothing like the uh, grammatical constructions, the ability to express anything you like, the ability to say, I can utter, utter the word kangaroo, and immediately an image flashes into the mind of everybody of a picture of a kangaroo. No animal can, can do that. I can, instead of just saying, as a chimpanzee might say, give me banana, in using sign language, washer might say that, or, or a dog can kind of beg for, for, for food. We can bargain for it. We can, we, can, uh, we can use language. So there is something utterly unique about it. And it is the main vehicle, I suppose, of cultural evolution, which is at least six orders of magnitude faster than biological evolution in achieving similar parallel
1: results. I think we had a question up back there. Yes, let's take the question that's up there. Um, Two-part question. It's related to technology and AI and how that kind of distorts our ability of what is real, because I've heard you speak about, like, religion distorting beliefs for how we think about things. That's part of the question. I'd love to hear that. The second part is in terms of mutations, not physical, but maybe cognitive, again with the AI, where where do you potentially see us going as humans with that next level of mutation and where could it take us?
2: There's a book by, uh, is it Max Tegmark? Um, oh, do, yeah. do I, have I got that, that right? A, a Swedish physicist talking about AI and how he anticipates that that will become so immensely powerful that there will really be nothing left for humans to do. And, and um, that it'll be self-evolving artificial intelligence that progressive in its own right will kind of take over. So that is a possibility. He makes a plausible case for it. In general, I suppose the really taking over from the previous question, the consequence of human cultural evolution. When you get into the realm of computers and what they can do, especially in the AI field, we can anticipate that future evolution may more or less cease to be biological at all and will become evolution in silico rather than organic. And once again, that's something that one can find frightening or exhilarating, depending on your point of view, and I find it a bit of both at different times.
1: We have a question from a Richard from the live stream. Do you think that scientists are now held in higher esteem by the public because of the COVID-19 vaccines?
2: I think that um, one of the effects has been that people have been impressed, as I am, by the incredible speed with which scientists really around the world have, have produced vaccines really sort of 10 times as fast as you normally expect it, it takes the time it takes to, to develop a vaccine. This has been made possible by the fact that because DNA and RNA are digital codes and they can be sequenced very quickly, the technology is available to, to, to read the sequence of RNA and DNA very quickly. As soon as the COVID virus was discovered, very, very sh- short time, it, the sequence was published. And that meant that anybody in the world could read the published sequence of this um, virus. And that's a necessary first step to making a, vi- to making a va- vaccine. And um, the other thing is that at least two, if not three of these new vaccines are, are mRNA vaccines. And they have the, that gives you the ability to develop a new vaccine very, very quickly, as soon as you know the sequence of the virus itself. So in future, this will be a kind of spin-off, I think, from the COVID case. In future, the next time... a a new virus comes on the scene, it will be very quick to produce a vaccine for it using the mRNA technique. Well, that certainly ought to increase the prestige of scientists. I think it has. And perhaps as compared with politicians.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We have a question over there. And then I'll come back to Dana as well for some of the online questions.
0: So I have a question about the language. Uh, So I think it's fair to say that um, science and like peer reviewed papers request a certainty and absence of ambiguity, uh, which potentially makes science a bit boring when you read them. Do you think it is possible to change this language in which science operate or would we always need, uh, as you described, the poets of the prose to bridge uh, this gap and excite other people? Thanks.
2: Yes, um, I, I have long been running a kind of crusade, really, to try to persuade scientists to write their papers in ways that can be understood by more than a small handful of readers. And it, it's, it's difficult because they need to pack a lot in these brief brief papers. Um, but I feel that if, science, if scientists could write their scientific papers in a way that other people can understand, my suspicion is they'd understand it themselves rather better. I think the, the act of of having the discipline of having to explain something to your aunt, say, that may not be possible for all scientific papers, but it would go some way towards making them not only more widely understood by other scientists and other um, sort of people interested in science, but everybody. And even the author himself or herself um, might understand something better
1: for having the discipline of forcing themselves to explain it to other people. Thank you. Dana, can we take another question from online while I just, if people would like to pop their hands up? Um, Someone from online is wondering why you chose to illustrate this book.
2: Well, the illustrations were done by Jana Lentzhofer, and they're very, very beautiful. And um, I think that flight lends itself to illustration. Perhaps not all books do. Some of my books haven't had illustrations um, but this book was designed for young people as well as anybody but, but more so than perhaps some of my other books and so pictures perhaps help and I think, I, I like to think it's a beautiful book I think, I think the publisher has done a, done a very good job the artist has done a very good job and it's a beautiful book to actually hold in your hand and look at and read through and look at the pictures I, I, think, I like to think the whole thing is a, is, is a, is a beautiful book
1: I loved it. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, we didn't get to, is Tinkerbella. We'll talk, uh, I'm not, we won't, go buy the book and you'll find out about Tinkerbella, which also has a very beautiful story about Bill Hamilton as well. Um, We had a question just down here at the the front.
0: Um, Obviously, for a long while, you've been involved in the fight against misinformation. What advice would you give to someone who was about to be in a position perhaps where they might be joining in that fight against scientific misinformation or against you know maybe the creationists or whatever you know what advice would you give to someone who was about to be in a position where they might be able to help how would you suggest someone go about that
2: we're in a very difficult time at the moment with respect to misinformation because um it is becoming fashionable to uh say sort of something like there's no such thing as truth and I have my truth and you can have your truth and we, we each should be entitled to our own truth. Well, you're not. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> you're entitled to your own opinion, but truth, at least scientific truth, is evidence-based. And if there's evidence for something or evidence against something, then that Affects whether it's true or not. It's very hard to get that across to some people. Um, One of the points that Steven Pinker makes in several of his books, he was on this stage a few weeks ago, we are here to hear him, is that there's very sad evidence that on many subjects where truth is concerned, what people believe is not entirely based upon the evidence, but is based upon whether it is good for their let's call it tribe, their political party or their religion, their, the, their people. Is it, is it what, what, what my people believe? And there's evidence that in America, for example, demo, both Democrats and Republicans, I suppose mostly Republicans, tend to believe something because it's what they want to believe rather than what the evidence shows. And one piece of advice which I suppose you would have to give to people, and I try to do it myself, but it's difficult, is to read people that you know you're going to disagree with because they may be right, you, you may have, have miss something. Don't only read stuff that's coming from your own bubble, your own echo chamber. So that would be one, one thing to do in this sort of political climate. In, in the scientific field, evidence matters. The only reason to believe anything about the real world, which is, which is what science is about, about the real world, is evidence. And uh, it's amazing how difficult that is to get across to people.
0: Hi Richard, Um, your friend and collaborator Sam Harris contends that religion can answer moral questions. Um, Are you of the belief that religion can answer moral questions?
2: Sam Harris thinks that that science can answer moral questions. Is that what he meant to say? Yes. Um, (laughs) um, Everybody, religious people think that religion can answer moral questions and I certainly hope that They don't take that seriously. (laughs) Um, Anybody who has read the Old Testament. But Sam Harris takes a rather revolutionary view. It's customary to say that science can tell you what's true about the real world, factual things, evidence-based things, I said before. But that excludes moral questions. Science, there's no evidence. You can't deduce moral facts from science. It would be a kind of orthodox view. You can't get an, an ought from an is. Sam goes out on a limb, and uh, in his book on morality, which is called The Moral Landscape, something like that, is that right, yes, Yes. Yes. that there are certain, well, I think everybody would agree, agree that once you've decided something like inflicting pain is bad, then science can tell you whether you're doing the right thing by that criterion of not inflicting pain. I think Sam wants to go further and say that somehow it's self-evident that inflicting pain is bad. You don't, you don't need um, to, to, to justify that. And so he develops the idea that you can actually deduce moral claims, moral truths from science. I think it's a difficult case to make and he makes it probably as effective as it could be made. I'm not sure whether
1: he quite pulls it off, but anyway... Um, so obviously when it comes to something like climate change, showing very obvious looking graphs is quite a good way to get your point across.
0: But one could probably pull out obvious looking graphs on many topics that were actually misleading. And really the science comes down to the mathematical nuance of you know, statistical measures, et
1: cetera, and control trials that make something true rather than not true. How do you think in the kind of noisy news media, et cetera, truth can be communicated with the idea of this is really backed up by methodical rigour and statistics without, you know, muddying the waters or boring people to death? Statistics
2: is, I think, very important, very important term to understand statistics in order not to be bamboozled and misled. And that is very difficult. Um, Steve Pinker's latest book, the one he was talking about here a a few weeks ago, called Rationality, talks about the pitfalls and traps of misleading misinformation or genuinely, genuinely attempting to understand and actually being misled by not understanding statistics. And it is quite difficult. There are all sorts of easy, of, of traps for the unwary in interpreting statistical data. So logic and statistics are very difficult and there are well-known um, pitfalls that actually deceive. Even highly sophisticated scientists can fall into them. Um, Daniel Kahneman Book on showing Kahneman Tversky showing how people can be easily misled in, in, in making logical errors because of the way the question is, is phrased. Recommend Steve Pinker's book, Rationality on that subject.
1: I'm so sorry that we couldn't take everyone's uh, questions. I knew that was going to... Oh, oh, Dan, is, is that... Oh, I, I, think, I think we've run out of time, but uh, it, are we, yeah, we have. Uh, Richard's going to go up front now, and, so, and, and, and I think, is Yana going to sign books yes, as well, we had, I hope, because yeah. the illustrations as I said before, they really are. They're an absolute... It's my favourite Icarus. I've finally got a favourite Icarus. And uh, thank you very much to the How To Academy. I should just mention, Richard, by the way, uh, just due to the number of people tonight, he's not going to be able to dedicate the books, but he will sign the books for you uh, in the foyer. So thank you very much to... Uh, to Esme to Dana to John to Vassi to uh, the venue and of course to Richard Dawkins
0: This week's episode starred Richard Dawkins and was presented by Robin Ince It was produced by Dana Outcult and Esme Bright and the series is made by Dana and myself Our editor is John Doughty You can find Richard's previous appearance on the show on our website or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Vass Christodoulou